Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking this evening at verses 13 down through the end of the chapter and verse 18. And as we do so, we're actually finally this week stepping into a little bit more of our in-depth look at the time, the end times, the next event on the prophetic timetable, that being the rapture of the church. Now, next week, we're going to take some time to talk about why we believe the rapture is the next event on the prophetic timetable. This is not a belief that everyone has. As a matter of fact, there is a great amount of controversy for those of you that uh, know prophecy and have studied it. There's a great amount of controversy as to what is the next thing to take place on the prophetic timetable. However, we do believe in what we would call a pre-tribulational rapture at Legacy Baptist Church. The uh, term meaning that we believe that the church will be raptured prior to what we call the Great Tribulation or the seven years of tribulation as we have presented the 70th week of Israel or of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. And we talked a little bit about that last time. And I have mentioned that Daniel 9 is really the most important component of our understanding of a pre-tribulational rapture. The reality that the first 483 years of Daniel, of the prophecy given to Daniel, were fulfilled literally and to the national um, Israel or to the nation of Israel should give us a very good indication that the last seven years are also literal and will be fulfilled. And as God presents it, it is for Daniel's people, the nation of Israel. That is the purpose of the tribulation. That is why God has set it in place to chasten Israel back to himself. And we've talked about that and we'll continue to kind of brush these topics. But uh, this week we just want to talk about what the rapture is. And then we will consider the question, as I said next week, of when it is. So you're there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, and the Bible says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Paul is writing to an assembly of believers that has been under great distress. Acts chapter 17 describes the tremendous animosity toward these believers in Thessalonica from the Jews. So much so that when Paul and Silas had come and and had preached the gospel, these Jews ran them out of the city and even chased them to the next city, that being the city of Berea, to stir up trouble among Berea against them. Now, the church had been through a great deal, but had maintained a stellar testimony in that part of the world. You read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter 2, you see that even though they had gone through a great deal, they had a tremendous testimony among the other churches uh, in that region and beyond. And Paul sought to commend them, but not just to commend them, but also encourage them with regard to their suffering. So Paul begins in verse 13 by announcing his motives, that they would not be ignorant. He doesn't want them to lack 
knowledge is literally what that word ignorant means in the Greek, to lack knowledge concerning God's plan and the fate of those who have gone before. Now, we'll see that, that in reality, Paul is comforting them in regard to them who sleep, and we'll talk about that, or who are dead is what that means. We'll talk about that too. And we'll talk about Paul's purpose here and why we draw out of that purpose the reality of the the rapture of the church. So, let's talk first of all about Paul um, using this term, sleep. When Paul states that he is speaking concerning them who sleep, we know that he is speaking specifically concerning those who are dead. We see this example regularly in scriptures, that in the Hebrew language, they spoke of those who were dead as being asleep. Now, this does not imply, as some would believe, that their souls lay dormant. We know that the soul, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. The soul does not remain with the body, but rather goes to be with the Lord, awaiting the time, the rapture, the time of the second, uh, what's called the uh, first resurrection, the time when those who have believed on Jesus Christ or those who are just before God from the Old Testament will be raised up into resurrected bodies and be with the Lord forever. Uh, so, so they are awaiting their resurrected bodies, but this does not mean that their souls are sleeping in their bodies. All it indicates is that the Hebrew mind fully understood a person's death to be a transition, not an ending. That they knew there would be a resurrection from the dead for all persons, either unto blessing and paradise or unto judgment and damnation. The first resurrection being for blessing. The second resurrection following the millennium we'll find later unto judgment. Now this distinction could be difficult even for a Hebrew to distinguish. And in order to illustrate this point, please turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 Verse 11 says this, These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well, howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. So in this example, John 11, verses 11 through 13, Jesus declares that Lazarus is dead by saying that he is asleep. And the disciples truly and genuinely thought Jesus was saying Lazarus is asleep. And they thought, well, great, that's wonderful. He needs the rest. Let's let the man sleep. And then Jesus clarifies in verse 14, saying Lazarus is dead. This is the same sleep that Paul seeks to comfort the Thessalonians concerning, the sleep that is death, that temporary state for both the just and the unjust of death as we await our resurrection and await either blessing or judgment. And the reason why they should not be sorrowful is because they have Hope. That's what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So don't sorrow as those that have no hope. What does that mean? Well, that means that we do have 
hope. They know that there's a resurrection from the dead. And better than that, they know that if their loved ones are in Christ, which is within the context here, that's what Paul is saying, for those that have loved ones in Christ, then they are with Christ and that they will be reunited one day. But there's even a greater comfort here, and we'll see that in a little bit. So death is not death for the believer, but is another step toward everlasting life. And let me just state that in the context of this teaching, as we've said, it's clearly about hope for those who have already gone to the grave. Not necessarily Paul trying to give hope through the rapture itself, but in the context of those who have already died. And we will, as I've mentioned, talk about that. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with. Him. Now, Paul reminds the readers of that which they already know, that which they know distinctly, that Jesus died and rose again. And Paul is going to do something very wise here, something that we would be wise to emulate, which is we take that which is known and we use it to reflect upon that which, it, that which we don't know as well. We take the clear teaching of God's word and we use the clear teaching of God's word to help us understand that which is perhaps a little bit less clear. And this is an essential element of interpretation. And so Paul is going to refer to this essential doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus Christ's resurrection, to assure everyone in the church of Thessalonica that their loved ones in Christ will also be resurrected. Now, this is not the first time Paul has said anything like this. In fact, when Paul t- taught on the, uh, the, his, his great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this was one of his thrusts. There were people in the Corinthian church who did not believe that there was such thing as a resurrection. And Paul says, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you've got bigger theological problems. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear in verses 17 and 18 that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our redemption is incomplete, therefore invalid, therefore useless, therefore it's a fairy tale. If Christ did not claim victory over death, then there is no hope for you, for me, for any other man, woman, or child who claims to believe in the name of Jesus Christ to have victory over death. We're still in our sins. There was no redemption. There is no eternal life. There is no salvation if Christ did not raise. He goes on to say in in verses 20 to 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. We've talked about that term first fruits before. Jesus Christ had to be the first. No one could raise from the dead before he raised from the dead. Now, of course, we see the, the um, incidental accounts of, of prophets raising uh, others from the dead. That's not what we're talking about here. We're speaking of the, the, the true resurrection uh, of the dead, the uh, eternal life aspect, the uh, resurrected bodies, not another mortal body, but an immortal body as Jesus Christ raised up into an immortal body from a mortal body. So we're talking about that that um, particular aspect of the resurrection whereby we will be changed. We will receive new bodies. And we'll go to 1 Corinthians, um, 
We'll, we'll go a little bit farther in 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment and see where this merges. So, Paul says that he's, that Jesus Christ has become the first fruits of them that slept. He says in verse 22, or excuse me, 21 and following, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Everyone will be resurrected one day, not all unto salvation, but everyone will be resurrected. But every man in his own order, verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, afterward them that are Christ at his coming. So at Christ's coming, there will be a resurrection. Now jump uh, down, if you're in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, jump down to verse 51. If you're not, I'm, I'll read it for you. Verses 51 and 50. To, uh, we'll actually go through uh, verse 54. Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. So he's revealing something new here. He's revealing something that has not been taught. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We won't all die. Here's that word sleep again in 1 Corinthians 5. We won't all, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. We will all receive resurrected bodies. Verse 54, uh, verse 53, excuse me, 52, excuse me. In a moment, he says, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So there will be a resurrection unto new resurrected bodies and our bodies, those or those that will experience the rapture, will be changed as well. So the, those that are, are, are raptured will have an immediate change of their body from mortal to immortal. Those who have been dead will be resurrected unto immortal bodies, changed bodies. Verse 53, for this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when, verse 54, this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So there is a, a time when things will change. When in the twinkling of an eye, God's church will be caught up. Those who are dead will be raised unto immortality. We'll have new bodies. And we will be with Christ. And this is the rapture. This is what Paul is teaching of. That's what he's also referencing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Or back in 1 Thessalonians. Now I'll give you just a moment to turn back there if you need. We've kind of been going all over the place. and it's a little bit unusual for me. I, I normally like to just walk through a passage. Uh, this series is a little more topical, and it's not exactly comfortable ground for me, but um, but it's good, and it's needful for this time. So if we do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, then we must also believe that those who sleep in Christ will be brought with him when he returns. That's what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54, that there will be a moment when those who are dead in Christ will be raised and then those who are not dead in Christ will be changed. It's very important that we use our interpretive principles here to properly parse this. This resurrection is said to be for those who are in 
Christ. We'll talk about this next week as we walk through the different uh, understandings of the rapture, the post-millennial and the pre-wrath and the mid-trib and the pre-trib raptures. We'll talk about how we try to understand the concept of a resurrection with the pre-tribulational rapture idea when the scriptures seem to present one resurrection of the just and yet the pre-trib rapture sees two distinct events that we would call the first resurrection separated by the seven years of the tribulation, whereas uh, that's one of the, the, the reasons why some people struggle with the pre-tribulational rapture theory as opposed to, say, something like post-trib where they see uh, one resurrection as the Bible seems to indicate. The justified saints of the Old Testament have an entirely distinct resurrection promised to national Israel at the end of their program, that being the end of the tribulation. This means that the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just, will actually take place in two phases. One prior, as I mentioned, to the tribulation, one after, all called the first resurrection. Now, what we have so far, then, is that the Lord will return. He will bring the souls of those who have died in Christ with him. And we'll see in a moment that these who are dead will claim their bodies and rise bodily from the dead. Then we which are alive and remain will rise with him. Now look at me please at verse 15. Paul says, For, if we, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That word prevent there literally means to proceed or to come before as Paul is comforting the hearts of God's people in regard to this return of the Lord and the resurrection that was made real and made powerful through Jesus Christ's resurrection and, and the hope that we have because of it, he says that we who are alive and remain, those that 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one through 54 uh, Paul says will be caught up together, or not not there, uh, says that, that, that there will be those that will not all sleep but will all be changed. In this passage, he says, we'll be caught up together. Um, he says that, that we who are alive, who will be caught up, as we'll see in the next verse, uh, do, will not pre prevent or precede those who are asleep. In other words, they will go before we will go. When Jesus Christ returns, when we have the last trump, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then there will be a, a moment where the dead in Christ will rise, and then we, which are alive and remain, will be caught up together. And Paul continues teaching this idea in verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then, following the dead in Christ rising... Verse 17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So following the bodily resurrection of the dead in Christ, Paul says that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together, and we'll meet all of them in the clouds. The final generation of the church will not see death, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. They will be translated from mortality to be clothed in life eternal. Now, the word rapture in the Greek is the word harpazo, which literally means to seize or to pluck up. 
The Latin word is rapture, from which we get the word rapture, and that's where we talk about it. So, so yes, it's not in our Bible. However, it's a perfectly valid idea. It's a valid word. It's not a word that we should be afraid to use. So as we've covered it thus far, Jesus Christ will return. The last trump will sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. They will meet the Lord in the air. They will come down with the Lord. He will not touch the ground at this point. That will come at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Then we who are in the church, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now verse 18 gives us our, uh, the, the, the wherefore, the, the conclusion. The, this is what Paul is trying to tell us moment. And he says this, comfort one another with these words. This brings us back to the question, what was it about their understanding of the end times events that was causing them such concern? See, Paul began this by saying he didn't want them to be ignorant. He didn't want them to to, um, be as those that had no hope. They were sorrowing as those who were not believers at something. Now, presumably, their sorrow was rooted in the fact that the dead in Christ would somehow miss the events surrounding the rapture. Right? It couldn't have been about their sorrow because Paul's whole exhortation is about them which are asleep in Christ. So why would they be sad about those that are asleep in Christ? After all, they're already with the Lord. After all, they're going to be with the Lord forever. Paul's already taught this. What's their sorrow about? Well, it seems as though their sorrow is about the fact that the dead in Christ will miss this day. They thought that those events were perhaps designated exclusively for the the church as it was there on the earth at Christ's return. Paul's words are to assure them that all who are in Christ, whether dead or alive, will take part in the blessedness of that day, will in fact have a part in that resurrection. And in fact, the dead in Christ, not only will they be there, but they will come even before those that are alive and remain. And this is the comfort that they sought. So as we close our message today, I'd like us to apply in two very particular ways. Understanding is good. Application is needful, however. We read the Bible, not just so that we can know what the Bible has to say, but so that we can apply it to our hearts. And the questions are these. Number one, will you be among those that are raptured at Christ's appearing? The Scriptures tell us very clearly that this first resurrection, that the rapture of the church and the resurrection of those who are alive and remain are specifically or is specifically for those who are in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ. To be in Christ means you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's not the same as being a good person or as going to church or as being baptized or even believing that Jesus exists or that believing that Jesus is God or that He even died on the cross. The promise is reserved for those who are born again by grace through faith who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, not with their head knowledge, but with their hearts. You say, Pastor, what's the difference? Well, here's the thing. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. The Scriptures tell us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Scriptures tell us that we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses, all of those good things that we could try to do to get ourselves to heaven, they're as filthy rags to God. They, they are not sufficient See, because 
The first time you sinned, you were guilty. It didn't matter how much good you do afterwards. The fact of the matter is you did wrong. If you were to do something wrong, say steal something, and you got caught and you stood before the judge, and you said, well, judge, yes, I stole that television, but but look at all the good things that I've done. A just judge, a right judge, is not going to let you off the hook for something you did wrong simply because of things that you did right. So the first time you did wrong before God, the first time you sinned, the first time you did anything, said anything, thought anything that was contrary to the will of God, the word of God, the nature of God, the character of God, you fell short of God. You were guilty of a sinner's hell. But the Bible says, though the wages of sin is death, the good news is the gift of God is eternal life. So even though you have been placed on a path to hell, a just path because of your own sin. The Bible says God loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay your penalty, to die on the cross and shed His blood so that you would not have to die. He died in your place. He took your sin on Himself. The Bible says that as Jesus hung upon that cross, that God poured out all of His wrath for sin and that all sin was poured upon Christ and He bore your sin in His body. So He paid for your sin. He bought your salvation so that even though you sinned, you can be justified. That sin can be remitted and you can have a relationship with the Lord. Now, just like any gift... It's a two-way transaction. When a person buys you a gift, say at Christmas, it's not enough that they bought it for you. It's not enough that they wrote your name on the gift. It's not enough that that it's, it's already paid for and that it's wrapped and that they're handing it to you. If you don't accept the gift, it's never yours. If someone in this room were to come up to me and say, Hey, Pastor, I have a surplus of chickens that I got and I'd like to give you a couple of chickens that you can cook up. And I say, well, that's very nice of you. Thank you for the gift. I don't want it. Well, then it's not mine, is it? Or if I said, well, that's very nice. Thank you for the gift. I accept it, but then I never take it from them and it sits in their car for the next 10 weeks until it's all stinky and nasty and they have to throw it away. Well, then I never accepted the gift, did I? I accepted it in word, but I didn't accept it in deed. See, we can try to do that, but it doesn't work with salvation. We can tell God, I don't want your salvation, and of course it's not ours. Or we can even say, well, God, thank you for your salvation. That's wonderful. I, I, I'm, I'm glad for my salvation. But if you don't accept it, if you don't actually believe and accept that gift for yourself, then it's not yours. So the question is not whether or not you know Jesus Christ died on the cross or whether or not you know that Jesus saves you, but whether you have accepted the gift for yourself. If you have never done that this evening, then you are not a part of this promise of the rapture. If you were to die right now, you would not be one of those in Christ who would meet the Lord in the air. If Jesus were to come right now, you would not be one who would be taken in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. That would not be you. On the contrary, you would be one who would lie in the grave, your body, your soul would be in a place called hell, 
awaiting a time of judgment after a thousand-year reign of Christ, when you will experience a resurrection, your physical body will be changed. You will stand before the Lord in a place uh, that is called the great white throne of judgment. And as you stand there before the Lord, you will hear the words guilty out of God's mouth and He will cast you into the lake of fire where you will be separated from God forever in a place of torment. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you, make today, make this moment that moment. Accept the gift that has already been purchased for you. So first, will you be among those raptured? Those of you that will, those of you who are believers, those of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior, I have a question for you. Are you ready for the rapture? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that this will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And we who are pre-tribulational rapture believers believe that the rapture is what we call imminent. In other words, it could happen at any moment. If it happened at this moment, would you be ready to stand before God? Have your actions as a believer this week been indicative of a servant of the Most High God? Or do you have all of those pet sins and somehow in the back of your mind you're saying, well, I'll get rid of them one day. Well, I'll get serious about God one day. Well, I'll start to evangelize my neighbors tomorrow. What if there is no tomorrow? What if you're raptured tonight and you stand before God and you have to tell God that you didn't tell your brother or your sister or your neighbor about Christ because you just didn't believe He'd come? And there will be tears as you realize the time you wasted and the things you didn't do that you could have done and should have done. Are you ready if Jesus were to come right now? Do you eagerly await the day that you can finally be with your Lord and rejoice with Him? Are you excited like a child who spends all day making something for Daddy only to have Daddy come home so that you can say, Daddy, look what I made for you. Look how I've been spending my time. Will you stand before God one day and say, God, look what I've got for you. Or will you stand there empty-handed and say, well, God, I'm saved. I'm saved, but I don't have much more to offer you than uh, me. I didn't serve you. I wasted my time. Yeah, I went to church on Sunday. That's good. But the rest of the week, no one would ever know it. May I encourage you, if you're a believer in this room, Christ is coming. As we look at the world around us, He's probably coming very soon. When the Lord returns, will He find you doing? Or will you be one who has nothing to give their Lord on the day of His return? May God help us to be men and women who are determined to be ready for Christ's return. Let's pray together.